Hey everybody, this is Thomas. I um, forgot, or at least kind of ran out of time as far as recording 1 John 3, and so I decided, well, maybe today I can do 1 John chapters 3 and 4 and just record it on audio. I think this audio will be hopefully a little bit better and uh, we don't have to worry about any video or any of that stuff this time around. So. If you have your Bibles and want to turn to 1 John chapter 3, uh, I'll begin looking there, and we'll go all the way through chapter 4, and then sometime next week finish up with um, chapter 5. And maybe, just maybe, Lord willing, uh, this coronavirus quarantine shutdown thing for many states will be uh, loosening up, if not ending by then. I certainly pray and hope so. Well, beginning here at verse uh, 1 of chapter 3, we read, Behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us, that we should be called children of God. Therefore the world does not know us, because it did not know him. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. But we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he, that is God or Christ, is pure. So those are the first three verses and just want to pause here to comment on them for a second. Uh, notice that there's this uh, exclamation right away in verse 1, to behold or to see or to listen at what manner of love, the depth and riches of God's love for us, that he has poured out on us, on his chosen people, that we should be called children of God. Right? When we, when we think about that, um, we are wicked sinners. We have fallen from grace. We have fallen from God in the garden because we are all rooted Firstly, in Adam, and Lord willing, if we are saved, we are rooted into the last Adam, Christ. Um, but to go from those who have spurned God himself, born sinful and wicked, God-hating, to be reconciled to God through the God-man, Jesus Christ, so that we are now not merely on friendly terms with God, uh, but are actually his children through his son, Jesus Christ. That's the love that God has poured out on us is lavished upon us through sending his son Jesus to die for us and to live again, raising us to new life. We are not just his servants, we are his sons through his only begotten son, Jesus Christ. That is incredible. And it goes on and says, Therefore the world does not know us because it did not know him. Uh, if we have good earthly parents, mother and father. Um, there's an intimacy between the parent and the child, a knowing of one another that is not shared with anybody else. Um, you don't call anybody else your mother or your father because you don't have that bond and that relationship. Well, a covenant, as O. Palmer Robertson has said, uh, a covenant is a bond in blood, Christ's blood ultimately, sovereignly, administered. It is administered by God. It is, it is executed and made by God with his chosen people 
under the conditions that he chooses because he sovereignly uh, administers the covenant. And so to be in relationship with God as creatures, we are totally at the mercy of God. Um, and he is a good and just God. And so he created Adam and, and man was born into a relationship to God, a covenantal relationship, a bond to him. Man broke the covenant of works. Now Christ has come fulfilling the covenant of works. Uh, where man failed, Christ prevailed. And now in the covenant of grace, uh, we, by faith in Christ, can be grafted in again into the people of God and our uh, children of God. And this is a blessed uh, reality. And, and is one such that the world, um, therefore, does not know us. Why? Because we are God's children. Right? So you are born from above in Christ. You have a new relationship with Jesus that transcends every other relationship. It, um, and, you know, in Christ, all things are new, and we are new creations in Christ. We have uh, God as our Father. We are adopted into the family of God. And so the world, outside of this family, outside of this covenant relationship to God in Christ, without faith in Him, knows nothing of this. The world does not know us because it does not know our Father whose image we bear. We bear the image of the heavenly man, Christ Jesus, who is now glorified at the right hand of the Father. Well, the world does not know that relationship. It doesn't know anything about the fruit of the Spirit or the Holy Spirit or resisting sin and living for the pleasures of God and, and not the fleeting pleasures of this world. It cannot comprehend that or understand that. These things are spiritually, by the Holy Spirit, uh, discerned and embraced, not because they're nonsense, but because our, our sinful hearts and minds are uh, full of darkness and wickedness and nonsense, if you will. It doesn't want to receive the light of God because it hates the light. And as the Gospel of John says, uh, it, it prefers the darkness. It wants to stay in the shadows, even though it knows deep down that the light is, is the only true and pure and good thing. So verse 2, Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. So we are now children of God, and this greater glory uh, in Christ, in the new heavens, the new earth, and all things are made new. That's not yet you know, fully revealed what we shall be, but we know that when he is revealed, when Christ returns in all of his glory, um, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Right? There's going to be this beatific vision, this beholding of God in the flesh, in the face of Jesus Christ. And we will have that apart from sin. We ourselves will be shining lights in his great light, uh, glorified with him forever and ever. And that's why it says in verse 3, And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. We have the hope of glory of being glorified. So we must purify ourselves by the power of the Spirit and through the grace of God, of course, uh, taking the Word of God, prayer, and the sacraments and applying them to our lives. This is a great hope. But without holiness, no one shall see the Lord. Without walking in the statutes of God, in His commandments, and His precepts, we will not reach the kingdom of heaven. Not because we earn or merit our salvation, by our works, but because saved people 
are created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which we have been, our Heavenly Father has prepared beforehand, right? That sovereign administration of the covenant God has sovereignly ordained beforehand that we will walk in righteousness. And it's that straight and narrow path of righteousness that we walk that leads to eternal life. And so then, that's why we go on in verse 4. John says, whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness. And sin is lawlessness. Right? Sin is, is breaking the law of God. Sin is any want or lack of conformity unto or transgression of, a violation of, the law of God. It's not doing what God says we must do or it is doing what God says we must not do. And it's not just the action, but it's the state of, of, of being, our, our hearts. You know, are we pulsing out uh, wickedness or righteousness? You know, are we born again, grafted into Christ where our root is, is pure and holy in Christ or wicked in Adam and in our own sinfulness? Um, verse 5 says, And you know that he, that is God, uh, Christ particularly, he was manifested to take away our sins. He was revealed and made known, and, and his person and work was is, is recorded for us in Scripture so that we can understand that he takes away our sins. And in him there is no sin. In Christ there is no sin. And then verse 6, Whoever abides in him does not sin. Whoever sins has neither seen him nor known him. Right? This is very... Uh, straightforward. If Christ is pure and holy and undefiled and sinless, and, and to be a Christian means you are uh, spiritually, really and truly grafted into him, and he is abiding in, in, and in us, then that must mean that we are washed from our sins and clothed in Christ's righteousness. And from that perspective, uh, we really do not have sin in us, and we do not Sin, as in we do not make that a pattern, a lifestyle of our sin. See, the, the indwelling sin, the sinful flesh that remains, is being mortified. It's being killed. It's being cut off. It's being slayed. Right? It's no longer I, my sinful self, that lives, but Christ who lives in me, Right, as the apostle says. Um, in heaven, that sinful shell of ourselves, that, that sinful nature, will not inherit the kingdom of heaven, right? It's, it's going to be completely killed. The old man is crucified with Christ. And the remaining vestiges of sin, sadly, yes, are still with us. The lust of the flesh and the power of the Spirit in us are at war with one another. And as Paul says in Romans 7, sadly, as a Christian, you know, that which he hates, often he does. And yet it is not I who, do, who does it, but sin that remains in me, Paul says. So, yeah, we still sin, but that is not going to be part of our eternal glorified state. That sin nature is the old man that is passing away and is dying and is already, the mortal blow has already been struck by Christ on the cross. And so in Christ, abiding in him, yeah, we do not sin in that ultimate final sense. We are saved to sin no more in glory. Before glory, this side of heaven Yes, we will sin and continue to struggle with it, but that's not any longer, in the most fundamental sense, who we are. And that is because of our victory in Christ. But whoever sins, right, whoever makes a practice of sinning, whoever continues in a lifestyle of sin, is not in Christ, despite what he may profess or say, despite whether he's baptized or not, or a member of the church or not, or a minister even of the church of God or not. Right? We know there's many false teachers. 
that John is war warning us about here and is in the churches today. Doesn't mean they're a Christian. Doesn't mean they're born from above. Doesn't mean that God has covenanted with them and saved them from their sins. Right? So whoever sins in this sense, uh, who, who uh, are still to be identified with their sinful nature in, in a total sense, has neither seen God nor known him. And that's why they don't know his people either. So you can be in church and not really be a Christian and really miss the life of the covenant and the life of the people of God. You can be sitting there right among the people of God and in and, and, and the realm of the Spirit of God and have not the Spirit in a salvific sense. And even our children brought up in the covenant, baptized, must be um, encouraged to repent and believe the gospel, to trust in Jesus unto the saving of their souls. Um, and we pray that they will do that and trust the promises of God, that he will bring them to faith and give them new life. But we must nurture them with the word of God and encourage them, trusting God all along the way. And so John, in verse 7, says, Little children, let no one deceive you. He who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he, as Christ, is righteous. We should preach that to ourselves, preach that to the young ones in the church, preach that to our young little children. Right? Children, you say you love Jesus, show that by the fruit of your life. If you practice righteousness in your life progressively, you can know that you are his. If you do not, as verse 8 says, he who sins, who makes this pattern and lifestyle of sin, is of the devil. For the devil has sinned from the beginning. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. Right? The devil, he enters the, the earthly stage, the human arena, uh, in the garden before the fall, and he is the really the catalyst or the nudge, the temptation unto the fall of man. He's been sinning from the beginning. Uh, he was an angel of light. He becomes darkness personified, darkness himself, when, his, when he fell from heaven and took many of the angels with him. And then he falls to earth and is from the beginning on earth wreaking havoc with his sin. And leading others into sinfulness. But what did Christ come to do? To reverse the curse. To make all things new and even better than they were in the garden. Because now things are culminated and, and glorified. You can think of um, you know, God you know, making the earth and planting the seeds in the garden. And, and when a plant is freshly planted and just begun. It is good. And it is beautiful. And it can be as far as it goes in its seed form or, or you know, infant stage of plant form, perfect. But when Christ returns and makes all things new, it's, it's going from a garden to a garden city. It's fully developed. It's fully bloomed in its perfection. It goes from, if you will, one degree of perfection to another as a, a small plant grows up into a great tree. It was good and healthy at the beginning. It's good and healthy at the end. But the uh, reality the immensity, the grandeur of it in the end is, is even greater than it was at the beginning. And that's not to say that God makes perfect imperfection or some nonsense like that. Uh, we understand that God made animals and plants and the sun and the moon and the stars. And as scripture says, each one has its own peculiar glory. And then the crowning um, creatures of his creation, man made after God's image comes along. And he is to have dominion over everything else. So is, is man superior and greater uh, according to his being than the animals or the plants? Absolutely. But yet all of it was good and all of it was perfect. So for all of it to move from one degree of, of perfect perfection 
to another in that culminated state is not a slight on God, is not to say that God made something uh, defective. Uh, he did make something with its uh, potential to, to, to culminate and to grow. But it didn't happen, at least not as originally created, because man fell into sin. He did not heed the words of God. He did not exercise dominion as he ought. He listened to the devil, to the slanders uh, of Satan, the slandering of Satan, uh, his slander, slandering God, and uh, sided with the devil. But Christ comes and makes all that, fixes all that, redeems us in Christ, shows that his coming in the flesh and redeeming us from sin culminates and elevates everything to a grand finale and happily ever after with God and his kingdom, if you will, that's better than anything that could have been possibly imagined as Christ the great king slays the dragon Satan and redeems his captive bride from sin and the devil and the world to himself. And, and we now are fully devoted from the heart to him and he loves us and gave himself for us. That is the good news of the gospel, and that is a picture of the kingdom of God, of, of true spiritual war, warfare, of tearing down strongholds, of undoing the works of the devil in every sphere and arena of, of life, so that we pray that God's kingdom will come and his will be done on earth, even now, as it is done in heaven. And as we are being progressively sanctified, God's kingdom and its uh, establishment and growth on earth is, is being progressively realized and so we are optimistic overall in the big grand scheme of things about the advancement of christ's kingdom on work uh, on earth because his work christ's work has already been accomplished on the cross and it is the death knell of satan and his work and so all that's being rolled back over hundreds and thousands of years of course with fits and starts and with world wars and genocide and pain and suffering all mixed in there but the kingdom is growing, and we have confidence, and so we hold steadfast to him. Verse 9, Whoever has been born of God does not sin, for his seed remains in him. God's seed is in us, his spirit, his heart. Um, his love is poured out in our hearts. And he, the person, we cannot sin because he has been born of God, right? We, we are born again. His seed has been planted in us. We are transformed now as these new creatures by the seed of God, by the spirit of God. We cannot go on this lifestyle or pattern of sin. That sinful nature is being mortified and is dying and is not uh, our fundamental um, identifying mark or characteristic anymore. That's why we don't go around calling ourselves a gay Christian or a uh, you know, adulterous Christian. We don't attach our sinful struggles to uh, become like an adjective of our Christianity. That is to unite darkness and light. It's wicked, it's vile, it's terrible. Um, there is no such thing. Struggling with sin doesn't make you that particular adjective gay adulterous, slanderous, lying, stealing, thieving, Christian. It means you are a Christian who is mortifying and destroying these sins, and you're not identifying with these sins anymore. And that's becoming truer and truer as you grow in your sanctification. And as it is once and for all true, even already because of what Christ has done for you, taking away your sins, washing you in his blood, and, and giving you, uh, imputing to you his own righteousness. 
Now, verse 10, in this, the children of God and the children of the devil are manifest. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is he who does not love his brother. So keeping God's commandments, the first table and the second table of the law, you know, our duties toward God, the first four commandments, the last six commandments, our, our duties towards our, our neighbor, our brother, we must keep both. We must love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength and love our neighbor as ourselves. You cannot do one properly without the other. And that John's going to hit on that again and again. Verse 11, for this is the message that you heard from the beginning, that we should love one another, not as Cain, who was of the wicked one, and murdered his brother, right? He was of the devil, and he murdered his brother, jealous. Why did he murder him? Because his works were evil and his brother's righteous. His works were evil. Uh, Abel's gift was accepted. Cain's were not. Cain didn't like that, so he killed his brother. Verse 13 says, Do not marvel, my brethren, if the world hates you, right? The world is of the wicked one. The world, like Cain, is of the devil. The world hates the righteous Abel, the righteous brother, the righteous believers, the church, those in covenant with God, the family of God, the children of God. The world hates them and hates that, hates their works. They hate us because we are of the light and they hate the light. And yet, in one sense, they know that the light is truly good and righteous. They deny that. They deceive themselves. They suppress that truth and unrighteousness. But the truth still finds a way to shine through the cracks from time to time. And they, they hate it. They have to snuff it out. Unless God changes their hearts. As he changed our hearts. And praise God for it because we never could or would. Verse 14. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren. You know, fellow believers in Christ, I mean, actual siblings can get under your skin more than anything else. But brothers and sisters in Christ uh, irritate one another like no other, too. So if we love them, man, if we can love those nearest to us who most irritate us and push our buttons, we can know that we've been born from above and born of God. And, and when we love the true church and we love them righteously, we love them as fellow believers in Christ and we, we love them in a way that we are all sanctifying one another, we can know that God is in us and we are in him. He who does not love his brother abides in death. Right? You abide in death when you reject the commandments of God and do not love your brother but are still full of pride and ego and, and only love yourself. Verse 15, whoever hates his brother is a murderer. Right? Murder in the heart. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. David, yeah, murdered Uriah, but he repents and confesses of that. Confesses that. But to continue to hold that hatred and bitterness and to, to continue to hold that sinful uh, sexual sin or, or lust or bitterness or covetousness or whatever it may be, to let that keep root in your heart shows that you don't have the seed of God in you. You have the seed of, of, of Satan, your own sinful heart. The fall of man is still upon you and you're still identified with the first Adam and not the last Adam, Jesus Christ. And therefore, you do not have eternal life. Verse 16, by this we know love, because he, that is Christ, laid down his life for us. That's the paradigm, that's the example of love for us in Christ. And we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. If we are called to literally give our lives for our family, for our neighbor, we must do it. But whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need, a brother in Christ, a flesh and blood brother, a mother or father, whatever the case may be, 
and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? And think about with this coronavirus situation, situation that's going on, how many um, elderly grandparents and great-grandparents are put away uh, in nursing homes. They're not, no matter how good the care is, they're not getting cared by, for by their own flesh and blood children or grandchildren there. Um, oftentimes they're not treated very well. The, the people tending to them don't have that family bond with them. And they have to take care of a bunch of other people. And they're doing it not as a labor of love, but as a job. And the sickness and disease that's going around with this virus, and many of them are dying. And, and family members can't even get to them to see them. Well, with um, um, gentleness, I want to say, why do you put your, your, your parents, your grandparents, in a home to begin with? Can you not make some of the same sacrifices, hopefully, they made for you in rearing you when you were young? And return that to them as God commands us. You have the world's goods. You have a spare room in your home. Some space. It's an inconvenience, but in one sense it's not. Because you get to spend the last months or years with your, your own family. And if you have children, they get to have a greater intimacy and see how Christians love and care for one another when they are dying. And how precious is, uh, in the eyes of the Lord, is the death of his saints. Uh, to nurture and care for them. So we need to be very concerned that we do that and not just, you know, out of sight, out of mind with our our dying family, our dying parents and grandparents. Because that shows a lack of love of God in our hearts, a serious lack. It really does. I know there can be exceptional situations, but we're not talking about the exceptions here. Verse 18, my little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. Let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. Don't just say I love you as you're, you know, thousands of miles away, riding away somewhere. But in deed and in truth and in action where love is costly. Right? Don't say you love children and then not have any, not bear any. Verse 19, and by this we know that we are of the truth and shall assure our hearts before him. Right? We know we're of the truth because we love God, we love our neighbor, we love our children, we love our parents, and it, and it costs us something in deed and in truth, not just in words. For if our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and knows all things. We may have doubts, but God knows our hearts. He searches our hearts to cry out to him. He will show his love for us, and he will show us, yes, in Christ, our love for others, and assure us of our salvation. Which, as you may remember, that's why First John is written, to, that we may believe in the name of the Son of God and continue to believe in his name. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence toward God. If you know from the heart that you are serving him, you have confidence toward him. And it's not a sin to have confidence. You know, I've heard uh, even an elder at one of, my, um, one of the churches I used to attend uh, that I served with, who said, you know, I really don't know if we can ever come to an assurance of salvation. And this wasn't some prideful thing. Uh, this was a genuine um, concern that it would be prideful to say that you can have assurance. But that is not a righteous way to live. We are called to have an assurance, actually. A humble assurance, but a genuine assurance. If we cannot be assured of our salvation, how can we ever comfort others? God gives us that comfort, and so we must find it and come to it, as First John 
teaches us about. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence toward God. In verse 22, and whatever we ask, we receive from him. If you have a confidence in your heart to go before God, bold, come boldly before him to the throne of grace. Whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do those things that are pleasing in his sight. Right? You go, uh, when you're a child, you go to your parents and you can know almost beforehand whether what you're going to ask them for is going to be granted based on how your behavior has been that day or the last few days or weeks or months or whatever, right? You've been wicked and rotten, there, you, it, even if it's a legitimate request, you know, good luck getting, <laughs> getting it granted because you don't even deserve it. But if you've been serving your parents faithfully as a child, loving them well, obeying, doing your chores, being a model Christian as you ought to be, not just for the things your parents may give you, but because you truly want to do what's good and right, then when you come to them with a legitimate request and you're going to ask for something legitimate when you're walking with the Lord and keeping his commandments, uh, then you can know that you have the thing that you ask for because your parents are going to be pleased to give it to you, or your heavenly Father is pleased to give it to you as you serve him and ask for things that he is pleased and eager to give you already. God, give me more godliness and holiness, more patience, more love for my wife and children. Help me to be more productive in my work, in my business, in my occupation, to be a good employee or to be good to my employees, uh, to, to uh, be healthier physically and spiritually, emotionally, all these things. Uh, when we pray and ask aright, we, we know that God will grant what we, ha- what we ask for. And sometimes we don't know what to ask for. God, what job should I take? Who should I marry? What should I do next? You know, how do I decide between these choices? Lord, help me. Give me light. Give me clarity. Give me uh, uh, providentially a, 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 the, the path to walk down in your due time, Lord. Uh, when we pray from a clean and good conscience to the Lord for these things, we know that in his time, he will give us the answers that we need and give us the clarity on it. Verse 23, and this is his commandment that we should believe on the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another as he gave us commandment. Right? We believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another as he gave us commandment. Um, again, uh, believe in Jesus, love one another as Christ has loved us. That sums up all the law and the prophets, right? Verse 24, now he who keeps his commandments abides in him, abides in Christ, and Christ abides in him, and he in him. And by this we know that he abides in us by the Spirit whom he has given us. The Holy Spirit assures us, working by and in with the word and bearing the fruit of the Spirit in our hearts and to our consciences and minds, convicting us of sin and righteousness and judgment. It is by the Spirit, working with the word, that we know that we have eternal life and that we are his and he is in us. So then we come to chapter 4 in a very important chapter in this book. How do you discern the spirits, the Holy Spirits, the Holy Spirit from the false spirits of the world? Verse uh, one of chapter four says, "Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits whether they are of God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God." And every spirit that does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. And this is the spirit of the Antichrist. We talked about that before. The spirit of Antichrist is already in the world, which you have heard was coming and is now already in the world. And in John's day, as we even have today in various variations of it, 
um, various variations. That's nice and redundant there. Um, <laughs> uh, false teachers come and deny that Christ has come in the flesh. Or false teachers come and, and, and claim that God has said things, Christ has said things, or has done things which he never intended. Wicked things. Right? There's these variations, but they're all distortions and therefore are antichrist, anti-Christian, and of a different spirit, the spirit of, of, of the devil. Right? So you test the spirits with what? Oh, the word of God. What else do we have to go by? It is God's holy word, and it is clear, and God gives us light. And if we're praying righteously for God to help us understand his word and we study it carefully, he will bless that labor. Verse 4, you are of God, little children, and have overcome them, because he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. These false spirits, you have overcome them. Even if they are wiser than us, more educated than us, in greater positions of power and authority than us, we have overcome them, because he, Christ, who is in us, is greater than he who is in the world. They are of the world, they are of the devil, but Christ has killed the world and the devil and sin. And the world has been crucified to me, and I to the world, as Paul says through Christ. And so if God is for us, who can be against us? Verse 5, they are of the world, therefore they speak as of the world, and the world hears them. We are of God. We are of God. We are children of God. Behold what manner of love the Father has poured out upon us. He who knows God hears us. He who is not of God does not hear us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. If we are speaking the words of God to the people of God, uh, God's sheep hear his voice and they heed his word. They may uh, kick against the pricks for a time. You may have to use the rod and the staff. But scripture says the rod and the sta staff ultimately are a comfort to God's people. The rebuke in time breaks us in all the right ways, breaks our legs to bring us back into the fold of God if need be. And we love him for it. And those who don't, who, who resist and resist and resist, who are stubborn mules and, and, and would rather die than heed the, the truth of God's word and the goodness of it, well, they're of a different spirit. They're of the spirit of error, and they will teach error and live in error, and it's wicked and it's dangerous. Avoid that. Verse 11, uh, sorry, verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. Everyone who loves is born of God, truly loves, and knows him. Verse 8, he who does not love does not know God, for God is love. It is of his essence. It is of his nature. It is of his being, right? God is holy, 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 and, and God's uh, attribute of love is, is identified with himself here. There's that kind of, of direct connection to God and love itself. Love himself is God. In this, the love of God was manifested toward us, that God has sent his only begotten Son into the world, right? First John here, there's shades of John 3.16 here, same author. Uh, God has sent his only begotten Son into the world, that we might live, have new life, life born again from above, through him. And that life transforms all that we do on earth, living for his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. And this, in this is love, verse 10, in this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Right? In this is love, not that we first loved him and, 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 and convinced him to send down his son, Jesus. <laughs> the Israelites, they weren't serving God. God came to them uh, in their uh, wickedness and slumbering 
uh, in slavery to Egypt, right? God chose Abraham. He called him out. Abraham uh, wasn't seeking God. God was seeking him. And that's the way it's always been in Scripture since the fall of man. And that's why I'm a Calvinist. And that's why I believe in election and predestination and the true grace of God in Jesus Christ. Right? Because it is He who is the great seeker and the lover of my soul and transforms me and redeems me. It is He. And notice the order. In this is love. Not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Now, in light of that love, and once that love is poured out, as Romans 5, uh, what is it, 6 through 8 or so says, once we have that love in our hearts, now we love with that same kind of love. We recipro reciprocate that. We respond to being born again with faith and repentance, with a love, a genuine love for God and for his people. That's why it says in verse 11, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Right? It's easy, relatively speaking, if you're a Christian, to love God. Because he's good and perfect and holy, he's, he saved you. But some of your greatest grief in life will probably come from fellow believers in Christ. And so to love them in some ways, uh, in some ways, is even more difficult than loving God himself. But if God has so loved us when we were yet sinners, when we were wicked and unwilling and uh, unable to love him, unable because we were unwilling, because we're dead in our sins, if God loved us in that state, we also ought to love one another, fellow believers, who are born again already. God loved us when we were dead in sin. Fellow believers, we still are sinners, but we're alive at least in Christ now. So we can love one another, surely, even when we're sinned against, right? Right? We have to, and when we don't, we must repent and confess that to God and to our fellow man when we sin against them. Verse 12, no one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love has been perfected in us. You have not seen God. We haven't even seen Jesus Christ in the flesh. But if we love one another, God abides in us, and his love has been perfected in us. You see God through uh, the fruit of the Spirit in your life. You see God in the Word, the inscripturated Word for us. And in glory, we will see the God-man Jesus Christ face to face. And know him as we are known. Verse 13, by this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us his spirit of his spirit. And that's, isn't that it above all? God says, Christ says, I will not leave you as orphan, orphans, disciples. I will not leave you alone. I will send you the Holy Spirit, the comforter. And John, the gospel of John says, it is to your advantage. Christ says, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I don't leave, the helper will not come. Christ goes to the right hand of the Father, and now with power and authority, sends forth God the Holy Spirit to indwell you. And again, that covenant communion is richer and deeper than the Old Covenant, Old Testament saints, even richer, if you can believe it, than the disciples had while Christ was with them on earth, because it was to their advantage that the Spirit would come to you, come to them. And you see in the first chapters of Acts, the power of of the disciples living by the power of the Holy Spirit that Jesus Christ sent them. Before that, while Christ was with them, he couldn't get them to, to, to stay awake while he was in the garden praying before his crucifixion. He couldn't get them to remain faithful to him hardly at all. But now that he has risen and has the power of the Holy Spirit, he sends it to them and now he leads his church from his throne on high in glory by the power of his Spirit working mightily within us so that we are growing in godliness and holiness. And it gives even greater clarity uh, of the true saints of God led by the Spirit and those false 
churches and false professors and false teachers who are really with the world and of the spirit of the Antichrist and the spirit of Satan, children of the devil. Uh, verse 14, And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent the Son as Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him. If you confess truly Jesus is the Son of God, and he is your Lord and Savior, God abides in you. And you, he, and God, you abide in God as well. Right? Seated in the heavenly places with Christ Jesus. Also why it is to our advantage that Christ goes up there, because spiritually we go up to the heavenly places with, with Christ. Incredible. Um, if Christ was not there, we would not be there. Verse 16, And we have known and believed the love that God has for us. We have faith. God is love, and he who abides in love abides in God and God in him. It's a wonderful bond of love, the covenant love of God for us and we for him in Christ. Verse 17, now listen, love has been perfected among us in this. So here, here's the culmination, the perfection, the height uh, of, of love and the bond of love we have with God and our fellow man. Here's what it is. Continuing in verse 17. The height that we may have boldness in the day of judgment. Right? Perfect love casts out all fear. We have no fear in this love of Christ. No fear of God. No fear of his damning condemnation. We fear him in a righteous respect of being infinitely greater than we are. And worthy of all praise. Who should smite us but for the grace of God in Christ Jesus. But we can come before him boldly in the day of judgment, because as he is, so are we in this world. As, um, as Christ is, so we are, right? He is, he is uh, well, Christ is, yeah, uh, bought, uh, brought back from the grave through the power of God and, and resurrection life. We too will be raised to newness of life apart from sin. So then verse 18, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. Because fear involves torment. But he who fears has not been made perfect in love. We love him because he first loved us. Now, church, people of God, you know, if you're married, you love your spouse. I certainly hope. And even if you've had a so-called, you know, humanly speaking, perfect marriage, no major uh, sins or scandals or issues to deal with, we still know that there's the possibility of, of infidelity, the, the possibility of pain, and we still, the best husband and wife on earth, still sin against one another. And so that love, that bond, is deep and is rich, but it's not perfect. It's not a perfect casting out of all fear, of all doubt, sadly. We grow in that bond as husband and wife, and the bond between parents and children, a little bit different, but it, it certainly grows and should grow if it's a healthy relationship. But children know, hey, their parents, daddy can fly off the handles every once in a while or just ignore them, not discipline them like they should. Parents certainly know their children can say mean and hurtful things and behave uh, obstinately. And so there's a fear, right? There's a fear that I may have. I believe 
that the covenant promises of God are 100% and foolproof to my children. But if we raise them faithfully in the Lord, he will save them. That promise is, is, is sure. There's, there's conditions attached to it. Uh, and it's all in keeping with the sovereignty of God. But it's a bona fide, true, genuine promise from God. And yet I know the, the conditions may not be met. And the sovereignty of God, my children could be lost. And so there's a fear in that. And there's a fear of my children still turning away. So where is the only place right now in your earthly existence where we can have a perfect love and no fear? In Christ alone. He alone is a perfect man. He alone is God. He alone can be trusted always and forever. And even now, our, our trust in him, our, our love for him isn't perfected. In glory it will be, and what a day that will be. Right? When we have complete and perfect boldness. Now we have an imperfect boldness. And that day of judgment, when we are raised to new life, I mean, think about that. We, we fear judgment now because we're not raised to new life. But then, by God's grace, we will be. And we will be without sin. And it will be incredible. And, and, and we will be saved to sin no more. And on Judgment Day, we will be completely apart from that sinful nature. And we will stand before him in boldness. And, and good thing, because even as Christians now, if we had to stand before him on Judgment Day, we, we would fall. We would be so afraid. And so it goes on. In ver yeah, let me just read verse 18 and 19 again. There is no fear in love, but perfect love cast out fear, because fear involves torment. But he who fears has not been made perfect in love. We're not yet perfect, but one day we will be. Verse 19. We love him because he first loved us. And there it is again, right? We love him because he first loved us. Because he first chose, chose us. We are the beloved. Right? God did not love us because he first foresaw us loving him. That's putting it completely backward. Man did not by his free will choose God, apart from God first choosing him and, and regenerating him. God did not look down the corridors of time and said, Ah, that man loves me, so therefore I will love him. And think about that. That would be an inferior love. God just, you know, loving those who, who first love him. But no, he loves those who did not love him by, by giving his son for us and making his son the hero of history by loving his son. It wasn't an either or. It's not like, well, my son or my people. It was... I give my son to redeem my people, and my people become a bride for my son, and my son gets all the glory, and I get all the glory for the perfect plan of being the father. The father's wisdom is perfect. It's impeccable. In light of that, we just fall on our faces, and we love him because he first loved us with his perfect, incredible love. All glory be to the father. Just the last few verses now, verse 20, verses 20 and 21, 21 and we're done. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? Right? If we can't love uh, our brother who we do know, who is a fellow believer in Christ with us, how can we love the God who we've not seen? Right? And, and at, in some ways, um, looking at it at a different angle, it, it's indicating, okay, in this sense, it's, it's easier um, to love your brother in a way, right? Because you have seen him, you know him. You, he's a sinner like you. You struggle with him. You have a camaraderie on earth with him. Uh, he's a fellow man who struggles like you do. But if you can't even love him, then how can you love the greater being of God himself? Um, and then verse 21, 
Well, one other point actually is, what is Christ? Who is Christ? I mean, he's God, he, but he's a man. And as a man, he is, he is our what? You know, he's a child of God and we are children of God. He's our elder brother, right? Christ, our elder brother, loves us. The, the kid brother, the kid sister who, you know, doesn't do good, rebels, all this stuff. And yet we get all the privileges because Jesus dies for us. Well, Christ, our elder brother, is a paradigm of how we should love others too. And then finally, verse 21, And this commandment we have from him, that he who loves God must love his brother also. This is hammered on again and again and again. It's a commandment from God. If you love God, you must also love your brethren. You must love one another. It's not easy, but it's what we're called to do. It's obedience. It's born out of faith. It's in the power of the Spirit. It's learned through the Word of God. It's all for the glory of God. And the perfect example is Jesus Christ himself. Well, I hope that's been helpful. And we'll wrap up sometime next week with chapter 5. Thank you for listening.